Hello and welcome to Living in a Time of Dying, the podcast about living in a time of global pandemic, social upheaval and injustice, climate catastrophe, and mass extinction. This podcast is a companion to the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, co-authored by myself and Taoist mystic, Toltec I Ching master, wisdom teacher, and my dear friend, William Douglas Horden. I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk, a writer, philosopher, soul mentor, perpetual student, and mother of possums. In this podcast, I and my guests will engage with a selection of chapters from the book to explore the questions, the conundrums, paradox, and fractal edges of this thing called living. This is an invitation to commune and feel together the weight of these times with all the grief, rage, love, and hope that it arouses within us so that together we may dream a new world into being. Hello and welcome, dear listeners. I want to start with a brief summary of the chapter we're going to be talking about today, or jumping off from at least today. Um, we're going to be talking about chapter eight in the book, which is titled, The Road is Paved with Feeling. And in this chapter, I push back against the materialist dualism of the Cartesian turn in philosophy, which has bifurcated mind from matter or consciousness and indeed humans from nature, and what I call the thinking and feeling functions, arguing instead that the relational experience of feeling or feeling with, in other words, empathic connection, is fundamental to who and what we are and to the very nature of nature, the cosmos, and existence itself. And today I am pleased to announce that I am joined by Matthew Siegel. Welcome, Matt, to the podcast. Hey, Megan. Hi. Great to be here with you. Yeah. So Matt is an assistant professor in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies and one of my former professors. I got my master's degree in 2021 from PCC at CIIS, the alphabet soup. Um, and and Matt was, you were, I think I took the most classes with you over my three-year period there because in the first semester, um, in the introductory, you know, intro to PCC course where they kind of, you know, we get to kind of get a taste of different professors, um, you introduced us to Alfred North Whitehead in a, I think it was a, a selection from Modes of Thought. And I got hooked. And you're kind of known as the Whitehead professor at PCC and beyond, um, certainly on the internet as well. And so I just kind of followed you like a little puppy through my study there. And and Whitehead has definitely become foundational, I think, to um, to my own philosophical becomings, shall we say, and to kind of how I uh, think about and experience life and nature and the cosmos and what is. Um, and so I was really grateful to have found Whitehead uh, because his work really just resonated with, I think, something that already felt really true for me. And so I was like, aha, <laughs> I'm not crazy. So at any rate, um, by way of introduction to your work, in addition to teaching at PCC, you, Matt, also runs the website Footnotes to Plato. That's footnotes, the number two, 
Plato, P-L-A-T-O dot com. And you produce regular YouTube videos on philosophy and uh, a blog also under footnotes to Plato. And uh, for anybody out there listening, if, if you want to get your feet wet in philosophy, I highly recommend uh, looking up Matt's work on the internet. You know, I think you make philosophy can feel really daunting to so many people. and It feels like, uh, you know, like like philosophers and philosophy exist kind of high on the mountaintop and it's not always for everyone and you make it so accessible. And I think the way that you kind of translate a lot of these I- philosophical ideas and and the the kind of histories and contexts of different philosophers is so um, is so available to so many people. So if anybody out there is feeling intimidated by the idea of of studying some philosophy, I highly recommend checking out Matt's work. Matt is also the author of several books, um, including On the Matter of Life, Towards an Integral Biology of Economics, um, Integral Imaginings, The Reemergence of Schelling, Philosophy in a Time of Emergency, Physics and the World Soul, Whitehead's Adventures in Cosmology, and your most recent uh, book, which I believe uh, was published just this past weekend on Earth Day. We're mm-hmm. recording uh, in April right now, um, called Crossing the Threshold, Etheric Imagination in the Post-Kantian Process Philosophy of Schelling and Whitehead. And I pre-ordered the book, and I am anxiously awaiting it to arrive on my on my doorstep, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to look at it. So I'm looking forward to that. So, hi. Hey. <laughs> Thanks for coming and joining me in this in this space. I wanted to start by just kind of asking you, and what of I kind of wondered to myself. I was listening to some of your uh, earlier podcasts on, on other on other podcasts, and and I kind of wondered to myself. I wonder if 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 Matt ever gets tired of talking about Whitehead, because Whitehead isn't very well known um, for a variety of reasons, and so a lot of folks. I, I think a lot of times when you're on a podcast, it's like, so who is Whitehead? What is he about? And it's a it's a repeat of a lot of that information. So if this is a repeat, I apologize. But in the briefest of terms, if that's even possible, I'm wondering if you can kind of introduce, you know, who is Alfred North Whitehead or who was Alfred North Whitehead? And, um, and I'm also curious, you know, how did you become drawn to his work? I know that obviously you've dedicated so much of your your study to to him, and um, I'm just curious what what drew you to him to begin with. Yeah, I can certainly answer those questions. And you know, with Whitehead, uh, the way I avoid becoming tired of talking about him is well, it's it's pretty easy. He's he's just such a deep thinker, and there are so many facets to to his work, to his philosophy that uh, there's always a new way for me to describe what what he has accomplished and what he has left for us to continue to to think with uh, and to expand upon. So, so far, I have not gotten tired of talking about Whitehead. And that's a good thing because more and more people are asking me to talk about Whitehead because while he has not been as well known as you and I might like, that's starting to change. I think the world is catching up to him a hundred years later. Um, it was a hundred years ago that he started publishing his, his more philosophical books like Science in the Modern World in 1925 and Process and Reality shortly thereafter, um, Adventures of Ideas and Modes of Thought, the book that you first read 
when you started in our philosophy program. So the world's coming back to Whitehead now, I think, for several reasons. Um, some are just purely scientific. He was among the first mathematicians and physicists to really understand both Einstein's relativity theory and uh, the quantum theory, which was being worked out in the 1920s. And for almost a century now, um, there haven't been too many major advances upon these scientific breakthroughs. And part of the reason is the refusal to really do metaphysics. Uh, Whitehead did not refuse to do metaphysics when he realized that the original metaphysics of the scientific worldview, the mechanistic world picture, uh, had completely broken down as a result of science itself pursuing its inquiry into the nature of matter and energy and space and time. Mechanism no longer made any sense, and Whitehead went to work uh, trying to develop a more adequate metaphysics for science, which would be rooted in organism right, rather than mechanism. So Whitehead was well positioned to do this work. Um, he His career started at Cambridge, uh, where he taught mathematics, um, and later he would teach astronomy. And it wasn't until he was well into his, well, early 60s, rather, uh, that he was invited to the United States by Harvard University to begin teaching philosophy. By that point, he had already made a name for himself, uh, publishing the Principia Mathematica with Bertrand Russell uh, and some works on the philosophy of science uh, from 1919, uh, Principles of Natural Knowledge, followed by the concept of nature in 1920, and then the principle of relativity in 1922, which was actually engaging in a critique of Einstein's uh, relativity theory. Uh, you've you've got to be really... Um, I mean, it, Einstein was already famous at this point, and for Whitehead to say, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> to Einstein, <laughs> takes um, some chutzpah. And uh, but he has very good reasons for trying to tweak this relativistic paradigm shift. He 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 thinks Einstein's brilliant and a genius, and he gives him his due. But he also thinks there are some epistemological problems, and he actually wants to make Einstein more relativistic in the sense of uh, making his epistemology more relational. Um, so it's actually you you could say Whitehead's more radically relativistic than even Einstein was. But anyways, those were uh, his earlier works. And then at Harvard, uh, he starts to do metaphysics proper. And he brings forth this, again, organic view, not only of nature, but of mind and of mind's relationship to nature. And you introduced um, oh, this chapter of your book that talks about the, the split between thinking and feeling, which is so dominant in you could say Western philosophy all the way back to Plato, but especially in modern philosophy, after Descartes' split between um, the thinking mind or the thinking ego and everything bodily, including our feeling and sensation, um, that split is something that Whitehead really zeroes in on and um, uh, tries to undo. For Whitehead, knowing even scientific knowledge, even logical uh, reflection, all of this is a kind of feeling. Just as our sensations, just as our emotions uh, are 
are forms of feeling. And so um, Whitehead unbifurcates the universe by pointing out how thinking, all of our cognitive faculties, knowing, uh, this is still a form of feeling, but it's a form of feeling that takes on a heightened intensity as a result of being um, built up of a complex network of feelings of feelings that give rise to contrasts. And so you get a kind of dialectic of feelings at work in Whitehead's understanding of how the mind comes to know nature. And consciousness is uh, thus a, a very intricate, highly evolved form of feeling, right? That would be to briefly introduce an idea that we might want to continue to unpack. Uh, consciousness for Whitehead would be this um, feeling of the contrast between a fact that's given in our perception and an idea, which is sort of a, a bare possibility that is nonetheless relevant in some sense to the fact given in perception. So consciousness is the comparison between fact and ideal, between what's actual and what's possible. And the tension between those opposed poles um, intensifies feeling to the point that it becomes conscious, right? So this is Whitehead's basic view of consciousness. And um, you know, from here, so much of his the rest of his philosophy unfolds just from what I've said, but I'll pause there and give you a chance to choose where we go next. Yeah, I mean, this idea of, of contrast between what is and what could be is something that, you know, William and I talk a lot about throughout the book, you know, and in, in regards to, I mean, so much of the world that we live in right now, uh, to put it lightly, isn't working. Like it's not working for humans. It's not working for nature, if you want to call nature, nature. Um, it's not working for a future for us as a species. And and it's causing tremendous suffering. And so, um, you know, along the way. And so one point that I continually make is like, it doesn't actually have to be this way, you know? And so I talk a lot about dreaming a new world into being. And that's part of, kind of part of my mission statement for this podcast is how do we, you know, you and I as one of my guests, but also in in concert with the listeners who are who are hearing this right now, how do we together dream a new world into being? And so, this this piece about about Whitehead's conception of of feeling in contrast and something about like we hear people talk about the evolution of human consciousness, and and I have a variety of thoughts and feelings about what that what we mean when we say that. Um, but many people today are saying, you know, we really need to evolve as a species. We really need to let go of some of many of the old ways that we have been coexisting with one another, which are so uh, rooted in violence and dominance, and lean into or learn into more careful ways of being with each other, more responsible ways of living with each other so that we can create a world that actually works for us. And and so I there's this there's this piece of curiosity of like wanting to delve into like what what does Whitehead's conception, his conception of feeling, his 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 cosmology, like what does that have to offer us as we are like as we think about dreaming a new world into being. 
And I think, you know, I, I was kind of saving this question for the last, but I'm going to throw it in here too, just to help to promote your book a little bit. You talk about this etheric imagination. And I'm curious too how that relates to a more hopeful, uh, agential, or what's the right term? Is it agentic or agential? I always get those two mixed up. I think it's agential. I like them both. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but this this sort of like turn towards the towards towards a hopeful future. Yeah, big, big, big questions, but I like those. Um, well, you you mentioned imagination. And I think Whitehead's philosophy takes imagination very seriously. Um, not that play is important too, but imagination is is a serious matter because it's out of imagination that the future arises and emerges. And most people unfamiliar with Whitehead might assume that um, imagination is a human faculty. Um, but in a Whiteheadian cosmos, words like imagination or creativity, which is really important in his metaphysics, these are not just human capacities. These are cosmic processes. And if anything, the human being is a product of imagination or creativity, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, creativity or an imagination um, they're not they're not faculties or powers that human beings wield like tools for our own purposes. Um, any artist or or scientist who makes a important breakthrough will tell you that um, they are sort of the victims of imagination. That imagination and creativity just happen to us, and we are the portals through which what wants to come through mm -hmm. uh, is expressed. But that um, we have no idea how we did that. <laughs> and so <laughs> there's a certain degree of um, trust or openness, maybe we could even use the word faith, um, that Whitehead allows us to, to cultivate in relationship to this power, this cosmic power of, of imagination, um, and that the human, the human being can become the vessel through which uh, a beautiful future is born if we if we can align ourselves with this creative power and also faithfully inherit all of the achievements of the creatures which have come before us uh, without whose striving we wouldn't be here right and so what do I mean by the creatures that came before us uh, I mean all of the hydrogen and helium atoms. I mean, uh, this, the one or two generations of stars which had to die to give rise to heavier elements out of which we are composed. Um, and then four billion years of the evolution of biological life on Earth. Um, it boggles the mind to, to truly remember in like a participatory way that we come from all of all of this. And in Whitehead's view, that's not just a bunch of matter in motion. There's interiority to this process of cosmological evolution and, and creative emergence. There's interiority, there's feeling, there's emotion, there's suffering, and there's joy. 
And we today arise out of that as human beings. And our particular species has only been part of this, this cosmic, um, I would say celebration. There's a lot of pain and suffering involved, but it's, I don't think it would still be going on unless there was enough joy to justify it. Mm. Um, this cosmic celebration is, it's been going on for a long, long time. Human beings just appeared on the scene and we're wrecking the place. <laughs> well, and, and human beings have actually been on the scene. I mean, even in, in the in the span of, you know, 4 billion well, years, yeah. we've been on the scene for a very short period, but the, the time that we have been, you know, wrecking the place- Industrial, yeah. Has been mm-hmm. even smaller than that. And it feels, you know, we take it for granted. It feels so, um, it feels like a box we can't, I mean, like capitalism, it feels like natural and like we can't see our way out of it. And yet it's really, really new as a as a conception and you know i can't help but think about as as you say you you know you're talking about what whitehead would call prehension it's a little bit of his terminology and so this uh as we move forward always kind of looking backwards and 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 recognizing what came before what has brought us to this point in a certain sense and as i as i look forward for humanity as much as i can um and I and I do try to dream into that future for us. Um, I also think about how we can, or how we must remember our, our uh, the suffering that we have caused, you know, the wrecking that we have done, and allow that to inform the choices that we make moving moving forward. I also you know, this, this piece about joy and suffering. And I think the thing that really drew me to Whitehead when I was first reading those sections from, from Modes of Thought was his, his, his writing about value. And in particular, um, it was that line about, he writes, everything has some value for itself, that in- interiority that you're speaking of, that feeling of, of its own experience. Everything has some value for itself, for others and for the whole. This characterizes the meaning of actuality, of you know what is in his terminology. And I thought that was so beautiful. And he speaks about it in terms of this, uh, what is his term? Uh, it's like a self-satisfaction or self-enjoyment. And he also writes, our enjoyment of actuality, of what is, is a realization of worth, good or bad, joy or suffering, right? It is a value experience. Its basic expression is, and this is the part that I just, it like got me to my absolute core, have a care. Here is something that matters. Yes, that is the best phrase. The primary glimmering of consciousness reveals something, capital S, that matters. And I quote this in in my book. And that was what, that was like the hook. I was like, okay, Whitehead, I'm here for you. (laughs) Because it's, there's something so, you know, he talks about this like meaning that is, um, this meaning and value that is inherent to everything. And I think that's what I'm speaking to in, in this chapter in the book, The Road is Paved with Feeling. At the, at the end, I write, you know, feeling is the map and the territory itself. It's like, it's at the very base and foundation of who and what we are. And, and so we feel um, ourselves at at various levels and we feel 
the existence of others. I'm feeling you right now. I'm feeling the space that I'm in. I'm feeling the world that I'm a part of in its hugeness, right? In its vastness. Um, I am, in a sense, feeling the whole in this moment because I am of that whole. And I am uh, inextricably entwined with that whole. And so I have a feeling of that whole, right? And there is also, you know, I also speak in the book about feeling with, and I, I quote, uh, there's another Whitehead quote that's about, which I term empathy, this feeling of, this this feeling and feeling with. And so I just think that's so beautiful and it, and it has so um, influenced how I experience myself and how I experience life, this, this, this unfolding tapestry of aesthetic enjoyment. Like what a beautiful concept. You know, I think about um, people like Adrienne Marie Brown, who I love to talk about on this podcast because she's brilliant, who is, you know, she calls herself a pleasure activist, right? And so what is it like to actually, uh, or what does it mean to, to acknowledge and to honor joy, like this aesthetic movement towards something, this desire, right, as Brian, our, our friend Brian Swim might talk about it, that is, that is endemic to every being in every moment. Um, and yes, there is also the contrast of suffering, of pain, right? It's not all joy. And yet it's almost like with that contrast, we feel the joy, we feel the pleasure more more acutely we it's like that's what gives us the direction to know where to go and so yeah i'm just kind of freestyling here in terms of my 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 fangirling around whiteheads um i like it ontology <laughs> and so i guess you know i guess i just want i i want to invite us to think and talk more about what this feeling or this valuation in whiteheads uh cosmology like what role that that plays in in how we know ourselves and how we move into the future. Yeah, I think there's something really crucial about this. Um, what I call in my my book, my my new book, aesthetic ontology that that Whitehead articulates, because at this moment in um, in history, there are so many reasons to doubt. Um, the human project. Mm -hmm. There are so many people for whom um, a basically nihilistic outlook has become common sense. Um, even if you know they would really like the world to be better, and they'd really love if they knew some way to contribute to doing that, they just feel powerless, and they feel like they're too small to make a difference, and. From this point of view, from this very um, kind of deflated, pessimistic mode of consciousness, uh, looking at the whole history of our own species and just life on Earth, it might seem that the suffering far, far outweighs the joy. I mean, let's just stick with human history. I mean, think of the horrors of um, of colonization, of imperialism, of of war and enslavement and, and and destruction of whole ecosystems. I mean, it's dark. It's dark. Um, and this is acknowledging this fact is one of the reasons that Whitehead says 
you know, look, the best we might be able to do inheriting all of this is tragedy, like tragic beauty as a way of reconciling it all. There's no way to um, avoid the tragic dimension of it. But nonetheless, this process matters. Something is happening here. It's not just a random occurrence because we feel even people who, who are succumbing to nihilism can't help but feel that concern, that sense of something that matters at the deepest core of, of their experience. And Whitehead thinks that that experience of concern is a word he uses to get at this in other places, is evidence of something, evidence relevant to cosmology and how we think about the nature and the purpose of, of the universe. And he provides us with a reason to hope uh, that a different future is possible, that we can cease defuturing, as it were, by participating in this deeper rhythm of life that gave rise to us. And so I think his his philosophy is a source of of hope and optimism in a in a time that uh, has so many reasons to doubt. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, one way of, of, of getting at what he's saying here is that meaning is not something we just make up. Meaning is something we perceive. Mm. Meaning is something that, that, that the world around us, both, you know, this sort of historical process of becoming that led up to, uh, to us and just, I mean, the universe as it exists now, its meaning is something we perceive from that world. And yes, human beings have these uh, really powerful symbolic imaginations, and we have various uh, myths and um, cultural uh, processes of making meaning that can sometimes resonate profoundly with the meaning that we perceive in the world around us, but also diverge from it quite dramatically. And that's one of the things that makes our species so unique is how detached we can become mm. from the surrounding world. Our consciousness is so powerful that it has convinced itself, at least in some sectors of the modern industrial Western world, that it is separate from nature, uh, that nature is just raw material out there for it to reshape and mold to serve its purposes. Um, that's... that. That delusion doesn't seem like something any other species is capable of. Mm -hmm. um, and so one wonders, um, and there's plenty of evidence this, of this. I'm glad you pointed out earlier that you know we have to look at human history as um, at least several hundred thousand, if not a million or two years long. Um, and it's only in the last few hundred years that this kind of industrial capitalist mode of production has, has accelerated us towards mass extinction. Um, but for the most of human history, human peoples uh, in a diversity of ways had found a, a means of remaining in harmony with the rhythms of life. Uh, and it, it seems that something happened to us mm. um, later on down the road of being human that led us down a path that is now um, threatening at least 
our own species and many, many others on this planet. So what was it that happened? I mean, yeah, that's one of the great questions of my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I don't have a simple answer to that question, but I posed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I don't think that we're going to, I don't think they're, I think that might have that the answer to that is lost to time or, but it, it's, uh, in that prehensive, superjective way, it is also in us. Um, like we are, we are carrying the seeds of whatever happened that led us to this point. And you know, when you mention the, the the nihilism of of some people in this in this time in this moment, where it's just like it's, I, I feel like my my initial response is. Um, a kind of sadness and compassion because what I what I feel in that is a grief that is being denied right it's like the the feeling of this moment and you know at the beginning of uh, in the introduction to the book William and I write that um, that we have to kind of reckon with this moment we have to reckon with what is what it, what is right now what is happening right now and we have to move that recognition from the head into the heart and we have to feel it right so that's sort of the initial seed of this thread of feeling that runs runs through the book and i think that um that nihilism that sort of denial of the meaning and the something that matters as as whitehead would say um is like the, this it comes from this denial of of a of grief of a unwillingness or in, incapacity inca incapability to allow ourselves to feel it and i was just um the other day i was listening to an episode of my new one of my new favorite podcasts um, called all that we are with amisha gadiali and she was interviewing a man named jamie uh bristow who is a climate activist from the uk and he was talking about having uh having like physical symptoms, like physical pain in his body and thinking that it was related to something else. And then recognizing that when he allowed himself to really feel his eco grief, his grief at what was happening to the climate and what we were doing to the climate, um, the pain went away. You know, he went through this, a period of like deep despair and depression, but he came out the other side, uh, and, you know, I'm putting words into his mouth, but with a greater sense of ease, at least with carrying that, that knowledge. And I think that we, you know, with, with all uh, compassion to, to those of us who, who are withholding that grief, who are not allowing ourselves to feel it because whatever reason, because we, we don't feel like we can withstand it. Um, I think we are doing ourselves a disservice. And I think, uh, like I would like to dream into a world where we have more support for people to allow that in, right? To allow ourselves to really feel the truth of of this moment and and the possibility of it too. Um, mm. I think that's where our where our future or where the openness, at least, to our collective future lies. The the bad news is that our present um, civilization is ending. Mm. And the good news 
is that our present civilization is ending. <laughs> and yes. climatologists are kind of like these scientific prophets who are um, trying to read Gaia's future, right? Gaia is speaking to them in the language of their instruments and models um, to try to communicate to human beings about the consequences of our mode of production, um, uh, the consequences of, of global industrial capitalism. Um, and just to be fair, I should say, had um, you know the Soviet Union won the Cold War, industrialization was still baked into their um, master code as well. And so I don't think the situation would be any different. And so it's it's there's a deeper dualism at play here of the human being, probably best to say man uh, in this context, has been at war with nature. Mm. And so there's this patriarchally enforced dualism that's just as much present in um, a kind of uh, techno-industrial communism as in techno-industrial capitalism. And so I, I mentioned that just to just to say that I think this is deeper than just a political problem. It's a it's a psycho spiritual yes. issue. Yeah. Um, and the political splits and divides, um, the fights over which economy would be more conducive to human flourishing and everything. These are important questions. But I think to the extent that we're arguing with each other up here on the surface about about that stuff. The, the 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 deeper wound is not actually being addressed because that the 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 source of the split up here is the wound that we share down here. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm. I think whether it's um, you know your work or the work of so many others trying to shift this this block in our consciousness, um, the more we can get below the surface of the the soundbite. Uh, culture war up here to the deeper wounds that we share, I think the more likely we are to find a way through this. Mm. Um, but a way through doesn't mean um, a way out. That we can, <laughs> a way out. Yeah. I think so much is already set in motion. Um, we should be thinking, in my view, less about saving the system as it is currently set up and more about um, how to minimize the suffering um, and how to rebuild, um, right? Rather than being in denial about what's already set in motion and in all likelihood, um, this giant machine called global industrial capitalism that we are inside of, um, nobody knows where the off switch is, right? So it's going to keep running until it has no more fuel, Yeah. <laughs> right? And so um, our politicians are have shown themselves to be incapable of diverting its course. And obviously corporations are just set uh, to continue to extract profit until, again, there's nothing left to extract. And so I don't mean to sound, I don't think this is actually a message of doom. I think it's just realistic. But the good news is um, there will be... Uh, 
an opportunity to rebuild. I don't think that humanity will actually go extinct. And the reason I say that is because, again, feeling into history, we've been through, um, our species has been through many ice ages in the past, mm. which are quite, um, that the whole planet transforms pretty profoundly when, when an ice age happens. And we're in the Holocene, which may already be ending as a result of human a certain sector of humanity's uh, contributions to to climate change and um, shifting us out of the Holocene into a, a new geological era or epoch. And so if we are resilient enough to survive what has happened in the past, I think human beings will survive, but you know it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm. And I think grief is the only appropriate emotional response to the situation we're facing. Um, and the great thing about grief is if you really let yourself feel it, it's an emotion that moves. Yes. You don't get stuck. You get stuck in denying it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But if you feel it, it moves you. Yeah. And I think it makes you even more effective, you know, as a leader in this transition, if you can feel it and move through it and and it's contagious other people can move through it and feel it with you if we give each other permission to do it right mm. yes what would it be like to start a grief movement pun sure intended right like i i i, I find myself yearning for spaces of collective grieving instead of this collective denialism that that you know like just keep doing the things, just keep going to work, just keep, you know, um, living as we've been living. And so, yeah, just places where we can stop and allow that grief to overtake us and also hold a container for that grief for one another um, so that we're not doing it on our own, you know, kind of under the covers, <laughs> which I find myself sometimes under the covers in my grief by myself. And um, I think, I think we can hold each other better uh in in that in that in that process the other thing i was thinking about is you know in the episode one of this podcast and and chapter chapter two of the book is called uh becoming worthy of survival and i talk about kind of my relationship to survival and and i mention you know a decade or more ago i i was a farmer in, in a former life <laughs> And and my impetus for becoming a farmer and learning to garden and learning to, you know, do kind of all of these like self-sufficiency, like homesteady type things was because I was like, this, this shit is not sustainable. Like it's going to collapse. And I want to, I, I feel like I need to know how to like produce food and like raise animals for fiber and like milk a goat, and, you know, <laughs> make cheese and stuff like that. Cause I want to survive. Right. And it was this sort of like grasping, like it was out of a sense of like scarcity and terror, quite frankly, that I started that, that way of life and have since left that way of life because, uh, it will, it will grind you into the dirt and my body is just not up for it anymore. Um, and what I've realized is like, and it's like liberating, I'm not going to survive like the collapse of civilization as we know it. I'm not going to survive that, you know, like, and, and I'm okay with that. Like I have, I have come to peace with that. Um, cause none of us is going to survive. Right. But it has shifted kind of my focus or what I think about what I'm doing on this, in this life, in this moment, as this vehicle 
of the unfolding cosmos, right? And and that is to uh, to plant seeds, to like leave a, a a trail of to be to be like a drop in the wave of that creative evolution or that um, the next human, as it as it were, like the next um, unfolding of our species. And so that's what I, and I think part of that recognition has come from my understanding of Whitehead and realizing that, that I am a culmination of the past and I am also a seed of the future. Um, and so how best to be a culmination of the past and a seed of the future. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you here raise a very important issue that might have something to do with the cause of um, human history going down this very different road than it might otherwise have gone down. And that's the issue of death. I mean, you, you, you admit like, there's no way you're going to survive the death of this civilization. But at another level, like, everybody's going to die. We all die. Right. Death is, yep. is just a fact of life. And what Whitehead's philosophy allows us to understand, I think, is that um, well, first of all, the question of like personal afterlife isn't one he really gets into or finds ex especially relevant to his purposes, but he leaves it open. It's open. It's It doesn't contradict his metaphysics, but he's like, I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> but on another level, whether or not anything like what we, how we conceive of and are conscious of ourselves in this life, whether that persists, as you're saying, we are seeds of the future. Every one of our actions becomes part of the soil out of which the future grows, or becomes the seed out of which the future grows. And so, this there is an experiential continuum. And whether or not Matt or Megan gets to survive on some soul plane, I don't know. But on the level of the experiential continuum, this this fabric that we're all woven into together, of course, our experience continues, and each of our of our deeds and our 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 words we're la we're, we're language using animals and so our words matter indefinitely and are remembered right um we're participating in the future and whatever's most real about us now when 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 these bodies and these personalities are still alive whatever's truly real about us now will still be here in the future right and so the body dies probably a lot of who we think we are becomes disaggregated in some sense, but who we who we really are is is a node in this network, mm. in this fabric of life, and there is, I think, some form of of reincarnation that's very rhizomatic and web-like. It's not this linear, like one substantial self moves from one life to the next to the next. I don't think that's how it works at all, but some more distributed, uh, entangled form of reincarnation, I think, is an accurate way to describe what Whitehead is suggesting. Um, that when actual occasions of experience arise out of their past, inheriting their past and adding some new value to what they've inherited, they then perish. Like achieving satisfaction as an occasion of experience in Whitehead's philosophy requires 
dying, perishing. And his phrase is, uh, you either can describe it as becoming a superject. So as a subjective experience, you achieve the value that only you uniquely in the history of the universe can achieve. And then you perish, you die and become a superject to affect, affect the future. But you also gain what he calls objective immortality. You become food for the future, basically. Mm. Um, and so may we be nutritious food. <laughs> I love that. Matt, I think we're going to end there. And thank you so much for taking the time to to come to come on this podcast and to explore um, Whitehead's thought and and the permutations of of grief and and death and history as we as we grapple with this moment that we're all surviving through. Mm. It was a delight and an honor to be in dialogue with you, Megan, about such uh, deep matters and important matters. So thanks for having me on. I can't believe an hour uh, went by so quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Thank you so much, friend. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us in this episode of the Living in a Time of Dying podcast. If you are moved by the material discussed here, you can read or listen to more in the eponymous book, Living in a Time of Dying, Cries of Grief, Rage, Love, and Hope, coming soon both in print and audio from booksellers everywhere. And if you want to hear more, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts in order to be updated when new episodes drop. You can also find out more about my work at soulmentor.org. Until next time, remember, you are an enfoldment of the universe, showing care to itself. Everything is God. Live well. Die easy. In Love and Rage, I'm your host, Megan Elizabeth Tauk. Take care and be well. <laughs>